I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're continuing our study of this book. The, the theme of it is uh, hope in a strange land. Um, scripture tells us in the first chapter that we have a living hope, as well as in the first chapter, talks about us being exiles or strangers in the land that we live. Um, and so I want to talk about that as we are, last week you know, we, we deviated and, and talked about this concept of Christian karma, uh, so now we're resuming our study. Last time we left off at uh, verse 16, uh, just a, in a way of review, um, when we looked at verses 13 through 16, we learned that our mind and hope impacts our lifestyle. Uh, so what we think about, but even more, what we hope in will determine how we live our life. Your hope matters. And so, our lifestyle and desires are to be determined by a loving authority, not just unloving forces at work. And our loving authority is holy, which in turn directs us to be holy. Uh, and so this is the phrase where he says, be you holy for I am holy. And he's capturing a passage from Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and bringing it back to the New Testament. And so we're going to continue on with that. But let me just ask you, I've asked this question before, what's on your bucket list? What are those things, you know, that, that, uh, that phrase that we want to do before we die? What things do we want to experience? Or maybe uh, even more to the point, the question what do you hope for your children? If you have children, uh, what do you hope for them? You know, we're in that range where one child is, uh, uh, you know, 8 to 18. Uh, this, this spread of ages. Um, it's, so basically what that means is I get to watch and be a part of parenting in all its different stages. Uh, and so uh, we've got this experience where we're seeing the oldest now making decisions, directing uh, that will impact uh, the direction she takes, what things she does. Uh, and then I've got the eight-year-old and, and I'm realizing some of the decisions that we're making now that ultimately will determine some of who that 18-year-old may be someday. Uh, and so this this huge range. And so the good news about that is, um, uh, well, we get to change all the mistakes with the eight-year-old and 10-year-old that we just messed up with the, with the 18 and soon-to-be 16-year-old. Uh, so, yeah, the first two are, are guinea pigs, you know, it's just like, okay, we don't know what we're doing. Uh, and so the second two we'll kind of know a little bit more. It's, it's a shame we don't have energy to do any more than that. Uh, you know, that's, the, that's the, the sad reality. As many of you grandparents know, the time you get this parenting thing down, you know, the kids are gone. Um, and, and so that's kind of how it is. But uh, along the way, we, we have certain hopes for our children, right? We, we want them to do something. We want them to be somebody. So the question I want to ask you is, what's in play? What are the things you're doing that will contribute for that child to be a certain somebody? Um, and so this is where I want to talk about holiness. Because I, th I think the thing that's often missing in our society in Christian circles is one, holiness, even talked about. I mean, when was the last time you sat in church other than two weeks ago, 
where holiness was the subject. But even more, to desire holiness. To want holiness, to crave, to say that on my bucket list is to be holy. And what I long for for my children more than anything else is I long for them to be holy. Does that sound strange? Does this sound unusual? Uh, one of the things I talked about a couple of Sundays ago is that the way of the world is to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. So for us to desire holiness for our kids should be strange in our society and maybe perhaps foreign to you. And so in talking about this in 1 Peter, I, I'm praying that I can take the Word of God and show you what I think the Word of God is showing us, the motivation. Why do we crave holiness? What's the key and components of wanting holiness in your life? And just know that your desires are measured by what you do in your day. You will always do what you want to do. You will always do what you want to do. Well, you say, well, I don't think so, Pastor. In fact, I think I can find some situations where someone holds me at gunpoint and says, give me your money. I don't want to give them my money, but I'm going to give them my money. Why? Because I don't want to die. Well, there you go. You wanted to live, and you wanted to live more than you wanted your money. And so when it comes down to it, you will always do what you want to do. And so the question is, do we want holiness? How does your day demonstrate that? And, and you're thinking, well, Pastor, you know, when I think of the word holy, I think of a list of all the things that you have to do. I think of rule obeyers, uh, good people, or goody two-shoes, right? Not goody tissues. I've said it real fast, so, you know, you won't know the difference. Uh, but that, that's our, you know, when we say holiness, we always complete it by, well, holier than thou, uh, well, well, I want to present to you what Scripture is saying is that this is something that is not just moral people. And, and in fact, one of the ways we define holiness, uh, and we looked at the, the Old Testament word of the kadosh of, of saying to be cut, to be separated for something, and, and to say that we are separate for God. We are devoting ourselves wholly to God. And so it's also the WH. O-L-L-Y understanding of whole, all of who we are, holistic, all of who we are being devoted. And I, and I use the illustration of a toothbrush is to be separate, to be holy, devoted to one purpose. I had a little demonstration with Canaan to help bring it to his mind. We were washing the car. And we got a toothpick to get in those wheels where the brake dust is and can't get to it. And I said, hey, I showed him the toothpaste. You want to brush your teeth now? No. You know, why not? Uh, because it's nasty. Well, I'll wash it off. It's okay, I still don't want to use it, Dad. Why? Because it's to be holy, to be set apart for a purpose. So when we talk about being holy, uh, and Scripture says, be holy for I am holy, it is one, an understanding being devoted to God. But when we talk about the holiness of God, we need to understand that He is other. He's not on the same spectrum of of, of love and good that mankind is. We, we have the spectrum of someone good, someone evil, someone loving, someone selfish. We have the spectrum, and we just understand that God's not even on that spectrum. He's outside of that, but it's the holiness of God that makes his love 
good. It's the holiness of God that makes his power good. It's the holiness of God uh, that makes his wisdom good. And it's the one attribute that's repeated in the Bible three times over in description of God. In other words, the main characteristic of God is his holiness, his complete otherness outside of who we are. And so with that being said, I'm going to ask that we uh, go to verse 13. Uh, We're going to read this passage together, uh, and we're going to go all the way through uh, verse 21. In honor of this being God's word, I'm going to ask that we stand as we read this together. Verse 13 through 16 is what we emphasized two weeks ago. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was, known, uh, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. You may be seated. I hope you caught the phrases throughout. Hope in God. Set your hope on the grace that's in Christ Jesus. The, the association with our hope with holiness. Our desire with holiness. Our motivation is the key aspect of holiness. When we talk about motivations, it comes from the word, or similar, connected to the word motor, all right? It's that desire which drives you. Uh, and, and so the word motive and motor are basically the same word in English, but it's, it's what drives us in our life. And so just as the car has a certain motor to take it, and there is to be a desire, we all have a desire in our life that drives us, Right? It could be that your desire is to be totally comfortable, and so your desires could be characterized as apathetic, but it's driven by comfort, right? But every single one of us has a driving motive in our life. Uh, And so these all desires could be characterized as good within certain contexts. For example, we have a desire to eat. That's a God given desire, right? We have a God-given desire to influence, right? We have a God-given desire for a certain reputation. We have a God-given desire for uh, governing and influencing and controlling certain aspects in our life. There are certain desires that God has given. The, The problem is that all these desires that ought to be accessories, we've made one of them to be the drive. We have made these desires inordinate in that it now has the chief control of our life. So what do we do with this? So 
We're going to go right into uh, focusing on verse 17. This is a phrase, you shall be holy for I am holy. And I'm going to ask this question, what is the motive? Uh, what is the motive of our holiness? And so the first uh, understanding I would want you to, the component of the motive for holiness is first found in our relationship with the one who calls us. You see that in verse 17. Uh, the one who calls us. So if you go ahead and flip the slide up there for us, uh, the the hope of holiness is found right here in our intimate knowledge of the one who calls us to himself. What do we know about him? Well, you see in verse 17. First, he's our father. If you call on him as father. Uh, you see in, in verse 14 that we are to be as an obedient children, not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. And so there's already established a relationship of father and child, obedient child, and we know him as our father. And so this is contrast to passions of ignorance. You see that in verse 14. So we are called to the father, no longer in ignorant passions or passions of your former ignorance. All right. Let's, let's look at that phrase in verse 14. Passions of your former ignorance. What that is speaking to is that when we follow desires without thinking. I found that Satan attacks me, not just in what I think about, but even more what I don't think about. When I don't think about God as a father, then it allows desires to control in my life. I think about Joseph when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. Uh, and he was in a working situation and was found alone with the wife. And, and the wife was desiring more. And, and Joseph said, how can I do this sin against God the father and against Potiphar my employer. He was conscious and aware of his relationship with the, uh, the owner as well as his God. What Satan comes in and does is makes us so we're totally unaware and not thoughtful of who God is. Just operating on, I want to do it, this is desire, so I'm going to do it. These are ignorant passions, and now he says, I want you to think now as an obedient child and as a father since we have been or have this knowledge of him as a father. You know, I, uh, when my mom substituted every once in a while uh, in school. And uh, there has been one day in my life where she was my teacher in school. It was in middle school. And uh, we were at East Millbrook. And mom told me, I was like, all right. So I, I let the, my buddies know, hey, guys, my mom's going to teach this period class. So I was looking forward to it. Told all my buddies. I came in, and before the bell started, my mom greeted everyone coming in. Not with the smile of love that I was used to. <laughs> Not with a, hey, honey, good to see you. But her embrace was, everyone sit down and don't one of you ask me to use the bathroom. I was like, oh, no. And all my buddies were looking over at me and saying, that's your mom. I, like, I feel so sorry for you. I was like, oh. 
I was just so mortified. And, and the problem was, it's like just the one that I knew as my mom. And all of a sudden, this is like this creature was there, and she was the meanest substitute teacher. And what I didn't know is that she had a miserable class right before that, and she was on edge. And everyone felt sorry for me. You know, what you need to know is that when we have this God, He says, I'm your Father. And He is consistent. He is constant. And He is true throughout. doesn't matter if one period is bad in front of the other. And it's one for you to say, I know Him not as a teacher. I don't know Him as a substitute teacher. I know Him primarily as my Father. When you think of God, do you think of Him primarily as a Father? Not as a human father that has been flawed, but as one who is over but benevolent with power for you to bring you to himself. And so it says this is a a father who is also the judge who judges impartially. And so let me just ask you, do you have intimate knowledge of the one who calls us to himself? Do you know him as a father? This is what Jesus was teaching us when he said, when you pray, I want you to pray in this way. Our Father, which art in heaven. When Jesus was resurrected from the, from the tomb and Mary comes up to him and he says, I have not yet ascended to my Father and your Father. He has changed the dynamic. The relationship has been ushered in now where he is not primarily the judge, but primarily the Father who also is the judge. We keep on reading Do you know him as a judge? Are we aware that as we live our life, that there is one who weighs the balances of what is of God and what is of self, what is uh, glorifying to him and what is treasonous and self-centered? He knows the thoughts and intents of our heart, and he gives us the word of God to judge accordingly, the thoughts and intents of our heart. And so we have to be aware that in each day, There is a judge over the day, and he's our father. And then even more as we keep on reading, do you know him as the impartial judge? He's not one that grades on a curve. That was one of the hardest classes I had in seminary, was one who did not judge on a curve. I was like, all right, here's the standard. Wow, everyone failed that first quiz. (gasps) What do we do? You know the material better. That's it. I give you the reading assignment. Read it. Do it. You'll be tested on it. It's not going to be compared to someone else who is the best grade in here. To say there is an impartiality, there is a standard that he has brought, and he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And so it says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The idea of fear here is kind of what we looked at in James, to know and revere the authority of God, to understand that there is something that we are to be in all of, and that is the authority of God. The judgment of God is something that produces within us a reverence to say this drives us, drives our, our thoughts and our tents and our motivations to know that there is one who is going to judge over the things I do. But notice the phrase, exile, throughout the time of your exile. This is why we have 
the hope in a strange place. To understand that Nightdale, United States, is a strange place for a believer. It is unique. It doesn't use the word immigrant. It doesn't use the word tourist, right? It uses the word exile. An immigrant is someone coming to this place and looking to adapt the ways of this place. Tourist, you know, you, you stay in your bus. You look out the window. You take pictures of the bus. You, know, you don't really know the people. You just observe the culture and you go back home. But exile, you go and you live, but you carry with it, with yourself, where you came from. The values of where you come from. So when we talk about the exiles, we're coming now from a spiritual place that we hold on to these values, hold on to these priorities, we hold on to the relationship of Jesus Christ, and we live in a land that is really opposed to how Christ lives. Uh, there's a letter I, uh, in my reading about this uh, from early church history. A letter to Diogenes. This is a hard word, Jeff. Uh, letter to Diogenes. I don't, yeah, that's not in my normal thinking. But in it, he's describing, it's around the first, second century after Christ, and he's describing Christians. He says, Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They stay busy on earth. But they know they belong somewhere else. Their citizenship is in heaven. And so he starts describing what that's like. Several distinctions. He says, Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They marry and have children, but they don't kill unwanted babies. They are persecuted by all, yet they love everyone. They share their table with everybody. But they don't share their bed with everybody. They are poor and yet make many rich. They're short of everything, yet have plenty of all things. Isn't that an interesting way of describing the believers at that time? He said, here's the contrast I see with how this world works and how these people are busy in, he- in this place, but their citizenship is in heaven. How, how are the marked differences? Where do you find these marked differences? Well, he says, I, I think about how they have Life and are supporting of life, believing that life has human rights, that because they are innate in the image of God, so they're going to have kids and they're also going to be supportive of those who are children cast out. They're not going to kill these that are not wanted. They are persecuted, yet still they have a love that extends to everyone, that somehow there's a forgiveness that God has blessed them with, graced them with. There's a value that allows them to do that. That they don't become bitter with the persecution. They share their table with everybody. There's a generosity that they give to the people that are around them. Uh, Yet in this sharing culture, they're very different in this one aspect. And that is in the areas of the marriage bed. They're not sharing there. The generosity doesn't extend to them. Something's different. And what it is is simply that the believers understand that there is a role of marriage in the marriage bed. That is something that drives them an intimacy and exclusive relationship. Not something that you just experiment with everybody. Keeps on reading and, and says they're, they're poor. Yet they make many rich. They don't seem to treasure stuff. They don't hold on to it. They use their stuff to bless the people around. They make many people rich for that. And, and they yet seem like they're always lacking. 
because they never store up things, yet they seem to always have what they need in life. You think that would make any difference in Nightdale in 2018? It seemed to make a difference in Rome. But if Nightdale saw these same characteristics, it, it flows from Christ, and it's still very much counter to this world that we live in. And it's not just a, a list of rules now, is it? This isn't just, oh, okay, they don't watch just you know, G-rated and PG movies. This isn't just uh, a list of what they do and don't do. It is a proactive, joyous, conforming to the Spirit of God and the life of Christ. It is a joyous thing that's happening here. And so they know, they're knowing the one who called them. They, they know the intimacy of, or the, an intimate knowledge of one who calls him to himself as a father, as a judge, as impartial, as other and different from the world that we live in. I think about um, you know, the TV Netflix series that came out a couple years ago, Stranger Things. The whole concept of this is that uh, it was kind of like this creepy Narnia thing of uh, you have these portals where the children would go. And it was like this, this other world, this dark spiritual world, but they called it the upside down world. That had these corresponding things to reality, but very different. What we have here is there is an upside down world. It is the role of the Holy Spirit to understand that in this world of being in Christ, it is the complete reverse of what's valued in Nightdale. What's valued in Raleigh is that these things are given freely because they no longer strive for their wealth, for the influence, for reputation, because their wealth, influence, and reputation has been given to them by Christ. So they freely are generous in giving these things away. The sexual immorality in the marriage beds is something valued and treasured because it's been given to them by Christ. And it says it speaks to Christ. And they don't flip it about that, which is the adverse of society and Raleigh and other environments. But let me share with you, that's the first component of, of what our motivation is. is our, our desire for holiness is going to be driven by our knowledge of who God is and our relationship with Him. But there's a second major component in this as we read the text. Starting with verse 18. Knowledge of the cost to provide holiness. Knowledge of the cost to provide holiness. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know, our desire for holiness, our motivation for holiness is going to be directly related to our preciousness of Jesus' blood for us, which is in turn directly related to our knowledge of our own broken hearts. Why does God start with the law? Why does God start with the sin? And like this is what sin is, and this is what the Old Testament teaching is of what sin. Why did he start there? So that we would know our need, and that we can't fix ourselves. That when God does provide a way to fix us, we know how precious that is. 
And because we know the preciousness of Christ, it starts driving us into holiness. Um, my, son, my, my dad came back from Israel, and uh, after visiting their tour in there, they, they brought um, David's slings, two of them, uh, for my sons. So David's slings, it's not like the ones you pull back. It's the long leather strap, and it's got this little um, pocket where it holds a rock. And it has a little loop on the end, so it attaches to your finger. And you put this rock in it, and you, you sling it around, and you let go of the strand, and it flies out. And evidently, you can control where that rock goes. Because David did. But my boys didn't. And so, you know, they're out in the front yard. By the end of the day, I have a hole in our bay window. And I have one that's very weepy about it. But here's... Here's the thing as dealing with anger, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting there and normally I'm thinking in, in ways of how can I get this instruction across? How can they make right the wrong? What practical uh, correction, discipline needs to come into place to help them connect the discipline with what they did? And I couldn't think of anything. Because the logical conclusion is, all right, son, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be working a lot, and you're going to use that money, and we're going to repair this window. And I knew he couldn't do it. He couldn't work enough. He just doesn't have the ability. He doesn't have the skills. And he's really kind of at loss to know how much it cost. He doesn't get how much it costs. All he gets is, I'm in trouble. And there's punishment coming my way. And I don't like that. I don't want that. I'm thinking of it as, what's this going to cost? And I come to the conclusion, there's no way. There's no way he can pay. Which means, I get to pay. I've got to figure this out. And I'm absorbing the cost. And he may not ever get it until he has a son that does the same to him. When we walk into this world and we have this thought, this motivation, life is about me. And we start acting on that. We break a hole in the fabric of how this world was created. And that it was created for God and for his glory. We break a window. We do damage to the glory of God that is the most precious thing. And we have no real clue of what we've done and how much it costs. All we might get with the help of God is, wow, we might be in trouble. We might have to pay somebody. We might have a judge that will judge us someday. And, you know, I, I, maybe I can just do some good things to help make up for this. And so I'm going to try to be really good and I'm going to sacrifice, and I'm going to treat others well, and is there a standard anywhere of how to fix this? And I'm going to love people. And we, we think that by many sacrifices, somehow it, it replaces disobedience. Listen, sacrifice cannot substitute for disobedience. It cannot replace it. Disobedience stands on its own 
and there is no matter of good sacrifices on our part that will replace it. To obey is better than sacrifice, and that's where we failed most miserably. And the sad reality is that when it hits us, God lets us know there's not one thing, not one thing, and not accumulation of a thousand things that you can do to get yourself right with God. And God simply says, what you cannot do, I'm going to take it upon myself to fix it for you. I'm going to bridge the gap. I'm going to pay the price to make this happen. Knowing that you are ransomed. So, knowledge of the cost to provide holiness. Know the purpose of the cost. What was the point? Knowing that, notice verse 18, knowing that you're ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You are ransomed something. The point of the cost is to take you away from a system of thinking and living. Feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. We imitate those that are around us. It's called culture, right? Instead of examining life, we just imitate it. Some people will say, where are you from? Well, I'm from Raleigh, actually. I grew up here in Raleigh. Really? One, I've never met someone who grew up from Raleigh. Number two, you don't sound like you're from North Carolina. So, well, you know, I grew up where there's people from Vermont and Pennsylvania. Everybody was around me. We, we expect culture, right? We expect us to act like the people around us. And so we receive culture. We walk into it without even thinking. And so when Christ comes into our life, the Holy Spirit comes into our life. He takes us and he says, I want you by the help of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to examine the life you live, to examine the culture that you live in. You'll find out there's some traces of good things that come from God because it's a culture made from our uh, well, <laughs> corrupted away from God, but started off with God. So there's going to be some good things, but then there's some evil, wrong things. And the life of Christ comes in and exposes these things to us to help us understand that there are some things that we are outright to reject in the world we live. And so what's the cost? The point of Jesus dying is to take us away from the system of this world that says evil is normal, or, or sin is normal, righteousness is strange. And so if we continue down the same pattern of living that we lived in before we ever entered into a relationship with Christ, something's messed up. And let me just say it's not Jesus that's messed up. See, we want salvation just to remove us from the penalty of sin. But salvation isn't just to remove us from the penalty of sin, but of the power of sin. And one day, one day, the very presence of sin. And for us to say, God, remove the penalty from the sin of sin. Take that away from me. I don't want that punishment. But you know what? I kind of enjoy this sin a little bit. I, don't remove that power of sin from me. It is, is counter to what God has done in salvation. Salvation is to remove us from sin. The penalty, the power, and someday in the future, the very presence of sin. The penalty of sin has been removed instantaneously and once and for all by Jesus on the cross for us. It's done by faith, proclaimed to us, given to us. The 
power of sin is something the Holy Spirit is working with us through the Word of God, bringing us into His image in pursuit of holiness that will be culminated one day in the very presence of Jesus where sin and its presence will be ultimately removed from us. So in this journey from knowing Jesus as our Savior and Lord to one day being with Him, it is a pursuit of removal from the power of sin. For us to say, I just want to be removed from the penalty of sin and not the power of sin, reveals that the gospel has no effect in our life. The gospel isn't compartmentalized so much like that. It kind of just comes together. With one comes the other. And is the movement of the Holy Spirit in our life. So the purpose of the cause is that we are to be ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. We're no longer just products of our culture. Know the rarity. Know the rarity of the cost. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You will be as holy as what you know your sin costs Jesus. You will be as holy as what you know your sin costs Jesus. Like that of a lamb, without blemish, our spot. You know, John um, was a follower of John the Baptist. Peter is John's brother who wrote this letter. Uh, and so the Gospel of John tells us that when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which has come to take away the sin of the world. That was part of John the Baptist's teaching that Peter and John would have gotten. And so as Peter writes this, he says, when Jesus died on the cross, things kind of came together for me. Help me understand what was what. And so this is not just gold and silver. This is something extremely rare that you can cross the worlds over and you would never see anything like Jesus, who is God in flesh, who lived perfectly by motivation and action Perfectly right with God the Father, complete without sin. And in this world that likes to punish sinners, he became a victim, so to speak. And he was punished, not for his sin, but for our sin. And in that bloodshed, God absorbed the cost for us breaking the window. Precious blood of Christ. You know, one of the reasons why it hits my mind in thinking why to forgive and absorb costs for my son. Because I remember one time my granddad let me drive his brand new Cadillac. And it was a really tricky garage. And there's no horrifying sound as hearing the side mirror break as you pull out. I'm thinking. 16-year-old, I don't have a job. What am I going to do? He just forgave. He just absorbed the cost. Because he could, and he knew I couldn't, and so he did. There's a, a memory of that that allows me, frees me, helps me, to absorb the cost. Cars and windows, not that big a deal when it comes to the holiness of God. 
You see what Jesus has done for us with the precious blood of Christ. And, and, and what I want to share with you is, is the, the, know that this is the intention of the, the intentional plan of the cause. This was God's plan from the beginning. It wasn't like when men sinned and you came onto the scene and he's like, oh my, I did not know that you would be as bad as you are. I did not know that there would be so depths of hypocrisy in our life. I did not know that you would be so greedy. I did not know that you would be such a liar. He knew all these things. And Jesus' coming wasn't plan B. It was always God's plan since before the foundation of the world. He is the lamb that's come to take away the sin of the world. And so you see this as we read. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. For the sake of you. It's amazing how Abraham was able to believe God, given his own son Isaac in sacrifice, because he trusted God, yet he had not yet seen Jesus die on the cross. It really wouldn't have mattered how many rules Abraham obeyed if he did not surrender all of who he was. Yet he did it before ever Jesus died on the cross. Isn't it amazing? We live in the day when we can look back and see Jesus died on the cross for us. And yet the standard's still the same. See, holiness is... Ultimately, surrender of everything. Everything. If, if you have a house and you say, you know what, I, I'm going to let you stay in my house. You will be my guest in my house. And you can just make yourself at home, put your feet up on the ottoman, on the, uh, on the table, go to the fridge, get as much as you want, do whatever you want. But just this room is where I'm going to stay. Just don't go there. Who's the owner? You are, Right? They're still a guest. They don't change until you say to that person, every bit of this house is yours. There is no room that is withheld from your enjoyment and from your control. You can do with it as you wish. Would you let me stay as a guest? Holy, devoted. Full surrender. To say, it's not just doing good things. It's saying everything belongs to you, God. That's the idea. It's what he's working on. It's his plan. He was made manifest the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So as I read that, it lets me know this holiness thing, being set apart for God, holy, completely, Jesus was the first one to do it for us. <laughs> I am sanctified for you. I am set apart for you. In other words, he's saying, I give my all for your behalf, for your benefit, for your sake and he was not withheld he went holy and completely to the purposes of God for your benefit what God has called us to do and say give all of your heart all of your life Jesus himself was the first one to do it for us for our benefit and what you need to stand and I know is that when Jesus wrote in John 17 he said I these things are written to you I've written these commands to you that your joy may be full 
to understand that pursuing holiness, pursuing Jesus, is the only joyous path that we've been given. And it is complete joy in doing so. John Bunyan, in his autobiography, at one point says this, referring to death and the devil, beware what you do. For I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore take heed to yourself. As long as I'm on my way to being holy, he has kind of this world-defying, I don't care what you do to me. I'm going to laugh in his face. He says, he wrote, Jesus Christ is committed to my holiness. He has died so I'll be holy. He has ripped himself apart so I'll be holy. I cannot fail to become holy. The more I look at what he has done to make me holy, the more I see what he has done to sure that I become holy. The faster I get there, the faster I actually become holy. I am in the king's highway. Are you in that same road, in that same highway to understand that God has done everything that's needed for our holiness, our devotedness to Jesus, our intimate relationship with him, that in every part of our life, Jesus can be there, and there can be joy found in there, there can be purpose there. You know, this world, it it just inherits patterns, and it's done in what the Bible says, ignorant passions. In other words, you ask him, why do you live? What's the purpose of your life? And people struggle with coming up with the purpose of their life. Well, maybe it's live, love, and laugh. Live, love, and laugh. Where'd you get that from? I saw it on the wall somewhere. (laughs) But we don't know why. Live, love, laugh. I don't know why. The purposes are ignorant. If I want a meeting with you, don't you want to know why? you want a purpose for our meeting, well, how about a purpose for our life? God has given us a purpose. He says, I want you to be made in my image. I want you to become like me. The purpose of your life is to become like the most beautiful, the most glorious, the most holy one, Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of what 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 says. Behold or see What kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called sons or children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself even as he is pure. You see, if we're going to say that we love God, if we're going to say that we want to be with God forever in heaven, if we're going to say that we want eternal life, we have to also say we want to be holy. We want to be a part with Jesus. What's your hope? When it comes down to it, what we learn in 1 Peter, this living hope that carries us in the strange land, this living hope is Christ is for me, and I want to be like Christ. I want to be holy. And if that is your hope, 
that I can be Christ-like, that I can be holy. If that is your hope for your children, I pray that one day my child will know what it's like to be like Christ, to pursue holiness with him. When you have that hope, you have a hope that nothing can take away in this world. It doesn't matter if they have a car accident. It doesn't matter if they go bankrupt. It doesn't matter if they come physically disabled. It doesn't matter if these things happen, if they get persecuted and challenged and life goes wrong and off the rails. It doesn't matter because nothing can take away that hope and is the only hope that will only be assured by God himself. But is that the motor that drives you? Or have you allowed an accessory to drive you? It'll break you. But thank God, because in the breaking, he will call you back to himself. But why don't you just speed up the process and say, God, I see that your desire for me is holiness and Christ-likeness. Right now, my desires don't match that. Would you change my heart to desire that, to long for that, to say in my work life, help me to be as holy as I can be, in my family life that I can be as holy and set apart for Christ as I can be, in my relationships with others, my dating, my, uh, my co-workers, that, that it would be as holy as it can be? Let's make that our prayer. Let's pray.